Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Amy Cipolla is a certified wellness coach with a BS in nutrition and is the director of pharmacy at the Chef's Garden in Huron, Ohio. Pharmacy at the Chef's Garden is about building a greater understanding as to how your health is impacted by regenerative agricultural practices. Regenerative ag is something we love, love, love here at My Muddy Green and do not talk enough about. Now, Amy, in her role at Pharmacy at the Chef's Garden, guides consumers towards a mindful relationship with food by connecting the benefits of healthy soil to healthy plants and ultimately to healthy people. I love it. And what's so cool here is what they're doing is out of Ohio. Yes, all this innovation is out of Ohio. It's not out of LA or Austin or Boulder or Brooklyn, Ohio. Don't sleep on Ohio. So cool. Amy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your personal wellness journey, which involves struggling with an eating disorder, fertility, and blood sugar. And you say in your journey, you tried every diet imaginable, low fat, vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, could go on and on. So let's start there and what ultimately worked for you? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is it's been a journey, right? So nothing happened overnight. And I think that was what I needed to really stop is stop all the madness, start listening to myself. So really what ultimately worked for me was stopping trying to do all the other things people said I needed to do and really just start listening to what my body needed. Um, One of the things I'm really grateful for is that I got to the point where I really wasn't like, it wasn't working to do all these different diets for me. So I had been, I had been vegetarian. I had been paleo. I had, you know, done pescatarian. And while all of those were great, I still had health challenges. I was eating super clean, but when I was pregnant with my second child, my son, I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And that was the first time that it got really real. And I had had PCOS before that and knew there was a link between my blood sugar and um, my hormone balance, but it was improving slowly. But when I first got diagnosed with gestational diabetes, I was like, oh my gosh, it's not just me now, right? It's me and my baby. And so at that point, I really wasn't eating any animal protein, um, but I decided my really clean diet that I was mostly growing at home wasn't controlling my blood sugar. So I started adding in like regeneratively raised meats Um, and between meats and vegetables and like whole foods, I was able to really control my blood sugar at that point. So I really tapped back into what was tasting good, what was feeling good in my body. And I also uh, worked with a trainer lifting weights, doing things um, exercise wise that really helped my blood sugar as well. So that's been a very brief summary of my journey. So you know, you mentioned listening to your body and then also mentioned the importance of blood sugar. And so I struggle sometimes with, you know, I agree, listen to our body, but to a certain extent, because sometimes my body at 3 p.m. says you need a donut. And I love donuts. And, and every once in a while, I should have one, but not every day at 3 p.m. And so let's spend a little bit of time on blood sugar, because when that blood sugar crashes, you know, it, it tricks our mind, if you will, to think that we need that don't we that donut or cookie or whatever it is, and 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 talk a bit about you got to get blood sugar. Like, I'll just 
in terms of listening to our body, I I believe in that concept when our body and mind aren't playing tricks on it because of the processed food we're consuming. So it's like if we got kind of everything under control and uh, specifically our blood sugar, I think we can, but if we don't, we can't. So let's start there and why getting our blood sugar is just like so critical. You can ask my husband. <laughs> Prior to all of this, I would be described quite often as hangry, right? So those times when your blood sugar dips and you need something and you're going up and down so fast because you're correct overcorrecting most often. Um, even when I was initially pregnant, I would tell him like, man, this baby's really craving cookies. Like what's going on? I just, I need cookies. And you know, it is, I think our bodies get tricked by processed food into having cravings that kind of distort your taste preferences as well as your blood sugar balance. And so stepping back from that, like I said, I went into really focusing on whole foods in their whole form and then tuning into what my body what felt good. And so it's not necessarily, it is listening to what your body needs, but it's also listening to the response of how food feels in your body. So you can eat the donut, but like, how do you feel after eating the donut? Right. And if you feel awesome, that's amazing. But if you feel like, Oh, I had a blood sugar crash and I feel crappy, like maybe I shouldn't do that every day. Right. And so that's where I think, you know, I started doing yoga really young. And so mindfulness and like, mindful movement has always been, been something I practice. Coming into that mindful space with food was not only a way to like connect and listen, but also as a way to be kinder to myself and actually calm down, get out of that like sympathetic fight or flight state and actually into being able to rest and digest because, you know, my digestion was kind of a wreck at the early on too. And being able to get into a state where you're actually able to receive food and let it nourish you is a whole different ball game than, you know, feeling guilty, feeling shame, feeling all the feelings that we can associate with food. You know, I'm glad you mentioned yoga because, you know, for me, yoga's had a transformative impact on my health and well-being. First, it saved me from back surgery, but but two, I think it also helped me become a better listener to my body. And you know, if you think about it, you don't see a lot of people or hear stories where, you know, they love yoga, they're doing yoga every day, and they immediately go to McDonald's and scarf down cheeseburgers. Like, this doesn't happen. You become more mindful. I think you ultimately become a better listener. Because going back to the earlier point, I think some people are just so out of touch with their body that they don't know the difference if the donut makes them feel good or bad because they're just in this constant state of fight or flight, if you will, with regards to food, they're almost numb. And I see that with clients a lot. I'll say, how, do, how does that make you feel? How did you feel after eating that? And they really struggle, whether it's something that we perceive as healthy or unhealthy, just in general, people struggle with saying, how does this make me feel? And so being able to just give yourself that space um, and acknowledge like how how food is reacting in your body like how is it either giving you energy taking energy away you know what is the impact you know on that note if you want to balance your blood sugar you should probably be eating more vegetables and less processed carbs and 
you know, you recently shared a study on your Instagram that essentially said that eight weeks of increased vegetable consumption increases happiness. You know, you talk about how do you feel? So like increased vegetables increases happiness. Can you share a little bit more in terms of what the consumption was on behalf of the participants in that study, among other things? I think that's interesting. Absolutely. So, you know, this study is a small sample size. So they looked at 75 people in North Dakota who were men and women who were eating what they considered very little vegetables. Um, the dietary guidelines for Americans say two and a half cups a day. We know based on CDC data that about one in 10 Americans eat that many vegetables. Um, so in this study, they had their control group, which kept eating very few vegetables, and then their intervention group, which was given uh, vegetables from different groups, um, it being basically dark green vegetables, red vegetables, orange vegetables, um, legumes being beans and peas, starchy vegetables, and then other vegetables, which would be things like avocados. Um, so they were just asked to get two and a half servings in a day. After eight weeks of doing this, they reported um, better subjective happiness scores than those people who hadn't consumed the vegetables. So although it's not an all, you know, it's a small study, but I think it is, uh, it speaks to the gut brain connection and the power of simply making very small changes. These people weren't eating 10 or 20 cups of vegetables a day. It was really just two and a half cups. That's not, that's not bad at all. Yeah. And when you look at some of the therapeutic interventions with vegetables, so if you look at people like Terry Walls, and um, she has a, a plan around reversing MS, and Dale Bredesen um, talks about reversing cognitive decline, both of those people recommend six to nine cups of vegetables a day. And when I talked with Terry Walls, she said she actually eats more like 12 to 15 cups of vegetables a day. So two and a half is still on the very low side. The Mediterranean plan usually has around four cups of vegetables a day. So even with small changes, you can still have an impact. You know, it's funny you mentioned Mediterranean diet. It's something I've been talking a lot about recently on the show. I feel like in a world where we disagree so much on nutrition, I feel like the Mediterranean diet, mostly everyone agrees with, but like no one's really passionate about it. Just it, because it's a life, it's it's a lifestyle. It's kind of easy. Like I was joking, you don't see a lot of Mediterranean diet influencers on Instagram. You see keto, you see paleo, you see vegan. You don't see a lot of med like is Dan Butner like the 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 Mediterranean diet influencer. <laughs> That's true, absolutely. And so, on the note of vegetables and plants and blood sugar, um. You know, something I had trouble reconciling when I experimented with the Lovell's uh, CGM, and I love Lovell's, and I think their work is so important. But for, per, personally for me, I was like, I don't know what I do with this, is that I had a more stable blood sugar response when I had like a chocolate peanut butter cup from Justin's, which on one hand, I was like, this is amazing. I can have my favorite chocolate peanut butter cups from Unreal and from Justin's and all the other great brands doing this. That that's great. No real effect on my my blood sugar. But my response when I had a big sweet potato, I had a spike. And so I'm reconciling this. I'm like, okay, you made me very happy. Chocolate and peanut butter, that's amazing. It's heaven. 
but like it's processed. So no spike with processed chocolate and peanut butter. Spike with a sweet potato, which is unprocessed. How do you think about that balance when it comes to blood sugar? Because there are a lot of great foods and treats that are processed that aren't going to spike you. And there's some stuff that's from the earth and unprocessed that will. Yeah. So first, I would say it's really important to think not only about blood sugar, but about the other nutrients that come along with it, right? So thinking about like the beta carotene, the fiber, um, the magnesium, all of the things you find in sweet potato, the vitamin A, um, it's also really important to think about how the sweet potato is prepared. And this is something that actually goes against what I normally tell people. So normally I say, don't boil your vegetables. You lose so many nutrients in the cooking water. However, sweet potatoes are a very rare exception that the preparation technique for a sweet potato can widely and drastically affect the glycemic impact of the sweet potato. So for example, baking and roasting sweet potatoes takes them from like a 60 to like a 90 on the glycemic index, like drastically increase. So boiling sweet potatoes whole for just like 20 minutes covered is actually the best way to um, utilize them and keep the glycemic impact low. Also keeping on the skin. So making sure you're not removing the skin. Again, that adds more fiber. And then I always like to add in, if you look at like how to blunt the glycemic response, you look at acid, you look at adding fat, and then you look at adding fiber. So like, could you add in maybe some green vegetables with it that would have some more fiber? Like what other things could you pair it with? Um, how could you add maybe some ghee or coconut oil or whatever you prefer, which not only is going to help decrease your glycemic response, but it also is going to help you with the beta carotene absorption, which will be changed over to vitamin A in your body. That's so interesting. I never thought about the skin. Yeah. And actually frying, because everyone, I think when you're out at restaurants and you think of like sweet potato fries or whatever, they're a little bit healthier, right? But frying actually really increases the glycemic index as well. So what does that do? I'm curious. Do you have an understanding of like sweet potato fries if you went from a 60 to a 90 what is it what does a 60 go to for for good old-fashioned you know omega-6 laden canola oil soaked sweet potato fries that you would pick up at your traditional restaurant yeah so fried the glycemic impact they say relatively high i believe it's going to be in the 80 to 90 range as far as glycemic impact on um fries so wow yeah. And I mean, white bread, um, it's hundred. So, I mean, it is, it's incredible to think about. The other thing I like to talk about is there's so many different varieties of sweet potatoes. There's literally hundreds. Like you find about three typically in the supermarket if you're lucky, but there are hundreds of different types of sweet potatoes, different varieties. And so not all varieties will also have the same glycemic impact. So like purple potatoes potentially may have a lower glycemic impact again if it prepared in like a boiled way. Do you have a favorite among all the varieties? Oh gosh, no. I I love variety is what I always say. I love the diversity. So I'll eat all of the different sweet potatoes. We grow a bunch of different sweet potatoes here. Um, 
you know, I don't go crazy on them, especially knowing that I need to control my blood sugar, but I'll, um, I have a, like a meat slicer, like a deli slicer, and I'll slice them thin into like toasts. Um, I'll use them all different ways, but yeah, I, I really love sweet potatoes. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. You have a, you use a meat slicer for vegetables. Yeah, you can, you can slice so many things, but yeah, it's fun to get like a nice thin cut that you can pop in the toaster. I keep them in the freezer and then I pop them in the toaster just like I would toast. It reminds me when we were living in New York, uh, there was a gourmet market. It's still there at Italy. And when it first opened in like, I want to say 2012, they had a vegetable butcher. I don't know if they still had it where you could pick like your produce, they would slice it up. It was kind of like celebrating vegetables. And what was so cool during the opening, there was uh, a famous like large scale visual artist, Jennifer Rubel. And so Jennifer Rubel was like this kind of so her uncle was Steve Rubel from Studio 54. This is like not relevant to the podcast, but at any rate, she's like this famous visual artist. She does like large scale, like, and she was for the opening, the vegetable butcher. And my wife, yeah, and like did a whole thing on vegetables. And my wife was like, oh my God, Jennifer Rubel, like, do, like people didn't know it was like she was part of it and like doing art with it and stuff. It was super cool. But like, yeah, I brought like a lot of attention to it. Yeah. Well, one of the things we just came out with, um, our chef, Jamie Simpson here at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, he just developed these root vegetable slices. And so they're literally like a deli meat essentially, but it's five different root vegetables. And the only other ingredients are essentially calcium for crispiness and sodium. Um, and they, you can cook them and fry them like you would deli meat. Like you could put them in a, like a Philly cheesesteak or like a sandwich um he made 25 different deli sandwiches but it's so incredible because it's so useful it's literally just the root vegetables no other ingredients so super clean as far as ingredients go low carb all the things right and um they're all from our regenerative farm so they're in yeah they're such an awesome product and I think it really changes like how I think about alternative like meats, right? Like meats in quotes. Yeah. You know, you bring up the, you know, it's definitely a segue to regenerative ag. And I think, you know, when you mentioned alternatives, alternative meats or alternative meat, um, it's my belief that the solution is not impossible burger or beyond meat. They're, they're both highly processed, full of omega-6 oils, uh, so I take issue with that, but when you bring up a true alternative solution in the form of root vegetables, that's a lot more compelling, especially when it comes from regenerative agriculture. So let's go to regenerative agriculture. As I mentioned at the start of the show, we just like don't talk enough about it. Uh, so can you give us a quick primer on what regenerative agriculture is for those who aren't familiar and how it's different from monocrop? Yes, absolutely. So regenerative agriculture is essentially farming in harmony with nature. What we're 
trying to do is to continually build the soil season after season. So if you look at conventional agriculture, it's more of like a mining process where season after season, you're taking from the soil without necessarily giving back. Um, so in regenerative agriculture, we focus on crop rotation, minimizing tillage, using cover crops. Here on the farm, we use like eight to 15 different species of plants in our cover crop mix. Um, and each of those plants are putting different nutrients into the soil. So you will very rarely see bare soil on our land. Those plants or cover crops also are capturing carbon. We know that soil is the second largest carbon sink we have second to the ocean. So being able to have plants capturing carbon, obviously good when it comes to climate change, but also that um, polyculture, right? So getting away from the monoculture and conventional agriculture. Here on the farm, we grow 600 to 800 different varieties. And even between our crop rows, we're planting cover crops like on the paths. And that polyculture strengthen, strengthens the soil microbiome, just like we have a microbiome in our gut the soil has a really rich and diverse microbiome if you're farming in a way that helps support it and isn't disrupting it through tillage and chemical application. Can you spend a moment on tillage? I think, you know, because overall this idea is regenerative ag is beneficial for carbon offsets, beneficial for the environment. Monoculture tillage hurts us. And that's a big problem uh considering this is like a much bigger issue that most of the farmland in the united states is controlled by very few people and that's the process they use but like slowly there are a lot of great farmers independent farmers who are fighting back and embracing regenerative ag and it makes so much sense and i think it's getting a lot of attention but can you spend a moment and talk about tillage tillage is something you know as we as we progressed, we started using more mechanical means. Tillage is really disrupting that microbiome, uh, microbial structure of the soil. So there's usually, uh, well, there should be in healthy soil, a fungal network, right? And all the microbes and the fungi, they help the plants to make nutrients available. They have a symbiotic relationship with the plants. And um, John Kempf has done a lot of work around regenerative agriculture. And he has this like plant health pyramid where the basic level is just photosynthesis. Then you go to protein synthesis, lipid synthesis, and um, kind of towards the peak of the plant. And the peak is really that optimal health where the plant's immune system is optimally healthy and it's able to resist disease pressure or pest pressure without using additional inputs, right? However, most of what we're doing right now, especially with tillage and conventional agriculture, the plants are not even getting past level one. They're not even getting past photosynthesis. So their immune systems are weak. They're unable to take up the nutrients, even if they're there in the soil. So even if you're farming conventionally and the minerals are there in your soil, the microbes actually help them to be more bioavailable to the plant to be taken up. So sometimes those minerals may be there, but they may not be in a form that the plant can actually utilize. And so when you're growing in um, nutrient deficient soil, you then have nutrient deficient plants, which are not as beaneficial, obviously, to human health. Yeah, because I think so many people are thinking, okay, get it for the environment. I support that. But how, how does it matter 
in terms of my personal health. And I think that that's the answer is you need healthy soil to have healthy nutrient dense plants. So we benefit. And when you think about it, 98% of what you're eating comes from the soil, whether that's you're eating animal proteins and those animals are eating plants that came from the soil, or you're eating vegetables. The average is 78% vegetables and 20% animals um, as far as plant consumption and, or, or yeah, like plant consumption. And so, you know, when you think of 98% of our intake is coming from the soil and that's where we're getting the majority of the vitamins and minerals and fiber and all the things that are needed for the essential reactions that are going on in our body that, you know, make us able to live and breathe and, you know, function optimally. So when it comes to the food we eat and sources specifically, you know, on one hand, I think it's so critical. On the other hand, I, I think, you know, you don't want to overwhelm people. This can quickly become an episode of Portlandia where, where nothing, nothing is ever good enough. And, and so how do you think about when you're working with someone, you know, do you say, all right, you look for organic or you look from made from regenerative agriculture practices or somewhere else? Like how, how do you think about this when you're prescribing food sources for people? Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's really important to understand everyone's in a different spot. We have to think about socioeconomic factors. Not everybody is able to afford fruits and vegetables. I think, unfortunately, the subsidies that are out there are really around kind of the monoculture crops and our fruits and vegetables are more expensive. Um, so meeting people where they are, I think, you know, frozen vegetables versus canned, I would recommend highly. Um, whenever possible, having a home garden, if you're able to find soil that, you know, it comes from someplace that, you know, hasn't been treated or doesn't have like chemical applications, that's great. Um, when you can, I would try to consume some fermented vegetables over pressure canned because they're going to be more nutrient dense. They're going to be more bioavailable, the nutrients that are in there, and um, you're going to get the microbes. I also think getting to know your local farmers. So, you know, you don't have to know like <laughs> the name of the guy who grow your vegetables exactly, but like get to know your farmers, go to your local farmer's market and connect with what's really in season. There's so much distance that vegetables travel to get to the grocery store and often they're harvested when they're not at full peak ripeness. And so there's a nutrient loss there by not getting to peak ripeness. There's also that nutrient loss in the distance that the food is traveling. So I think getting food as close to the source as possible and being able to consume it pretty soon after it's harvested or being able to preserve it like in a way like fermentation where you can retain some of those nutrients or freeze it um, can be really, really valuable. You know, I love that you mentioned frozen. I am such a huge fan of frozen fruits and vegetables. We rarely buy fresh. Uh, it's less expensive. You don't have to worry about something going out of date. Um, it's just so much easier to manage from our point of view as a family who's really busy and, you know, like to do some meal planning and prepping. 
Yeah, and that's, I think having those frozen fruits and vegetables available gives you a lot of uh, creative liberty too, because they're pretty much ready to go. You just need to kind of warm them up and go. It's also a great way when things are in season that you can freeze and put away um, for the winter, especially here in Ohio, where we do have a pretty significant winter and don't have great produce, you know, all the time other than what we can grow in the greenhouse. But um, I think it's a really nice way to put up things um, and vegetables and enjoy them for a longer time period. So you are in Ohio and you, what you guys are doing is so cool. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, your work with the chef's garden fit into everything we just discussed. Um, you know, what, what, what does that look like? Fill us in about the great work you guys are doing. Yeah. So, um, I am a pharmacist, so I'm a doctor of pharmacy and I have an undergrad in nutrition. And this honestly just brings together every single thing that I love. And from the time I started my undergrad in nutrition, I always said that I would be the pharmacist that helped people get off of medications, but I never really had a clear vision of what that would look like. Um, but that was my goal from the beginning. And so being able to come here and develop this program has been amazing. Um, so director of pharmacy with an F, really what we're trying to do is like be trailblazers in what really is food as medicine. I think there's a lot of buzz, buzzwords and even the term pharmacy with an F, right? It's very um, buzzworthy, but we actually have an on-site lab. We're doing mineral testing of our plants that we're growing. We're comparing them to what we can find in the grocery store as well as USDA average. We're trying to optimize how nutrient dense we can grow our vegetables. We, prior to COVID, were growing primarily for chefs and chefs were most concerned with flavor and kind of the aesthetics, right? But what, um, what we've learned and what I've been trying to promote is the flavor, the color, the fragrance, those are all representative of phytonutrients. And so by actually growing amazing high quality vegetables, they didn't know it, but they were bringing along the more nutrient dense varieties in the process. So um, we're working with corporations, with insurance companies, with healthcare providers to really kind of bring to the forefront, how do we actually bring into practice prescribing vegetables, right? How do we make this more accessible? How do we reach people, teach them skills about cooking? How do we, you know, start to actually put some um, consistency in like, like levels of nutrients in plants. So, you know, if you go to the store, we always say a carrot is not a carrot is not a carrot, right? Something pulled fresh out of the ground is a lot different than a carrot that is has been in storage for months. Um, also the varietal really matters, how it's grown, what's the soil it's grown in. And you can get a little Portlandia-ish as you get down that hole, but I think growing in healthy soil you know that even on the skin of that carrot is going to have healthy microbes and simply washing it and not peeling the carrot actually is the best way to consume it. When you peel carrots, you're peeling off the skin, which is kind of their, like most where most phytonutrients we found. You're also removing some of the healthy microbes that might be on there. So a simple wash is really all you need. Interesting. So don't peel the carrots, excuse me, peel the, don't peel the carrots and don't peel the sweet potatoes. Yeah, exactly. When you can, I always say leave the skin on whenever you can. If you're getting it from a farm that you feel comfortable about the growing methods and you know that you're not trying to remove like a like a pesticide or a residue from our herbicide, um, that's a whole different ballgame there. But as long as you're comfortable with the growing methods, 
um, you should be consuming the skin whenever, whenever you can. So you mentioned you, you're doing some testing on nutrient density. Any interesting findings yet? Yeah. So one of the things I love to talk about is with root vegetables, we really like to emphasize eating the whole plant whenever possible. So eating the root as well as the leaves, um, if you're talking about like a beet, right? And so when we looked at beets, if you look at beet root versus beet greens, the greens, which we most often cut off and throw away, actually have more minerals than the roots themselves. So that was really interesting to me. Same thing showed up with turnips. Um, so being able to look at ways we can utilize the whole plant and it, it can get like more bang for your buck, right? So instead of just throwing away part of that plant, how can we saute the beet greens and make them delicious and then benefit from those minerals? Fascinating. So if I'm throwing a, a if I'm making a smoothie, okay to just throw the whole root vegetable in there, same benefit, even if it gets, you know, chopped up in there is still okay as long as the whole thing's in there yeah and so in terms of working with people you know i love the thesis you know making making the pharmacy begin with an f and not a ph and 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 helping educate people around food can you share any stories of people you've worked with where you've seen that impact where you're taking someone in and you're kind of you know your background going through well this is what's going on over here and i'm going to prescribe you some carrots and anything you can share what you've seen so one of the things i'm working on here is actually curated vegetable boxes that are specific to certain conditions so i have a phytonutrient um vegetable box which is essentially we call it the eat the rainbow box but every season it's a different well it's each of the colors of the rainbow it's vegetables representing each of those colors. Every single month we switch it up so that it's always seasonal. We have a heart healthy box. So the vegetables in there have research behind them showing that they have benefits to heart health, such as garlic. What's, what's, what's in that one? I'm curious about what's in the heart healthy box. Yeah, so it varies a little bit, but it's gonna have microgreens in there. So we're gonna have our high nitrate greens. Um, we're gonna have some garlic or onions or leeks, um, whatever's kind of seasonal at the time. Um, I'm trying to think what else. We'll have beets in there. Um, we have a whole variety of things, but basically all of the vegetables in there are going to help support your cardiovascular health at health. And I actually, I've been talking to our team about changing it to like a cardiometabolic box because really we know that cardiovascular health and metabolic health being blood sugar are so innately connected that, you know, if you're impacting cardiovascular health, you're also likely impacting um, blood sugar balance and metabolic health. We also have a powerhouse vegetable box, which if you um, look at the CDC powerhouse list of vegetables, they looked at about 41 different vegetables and identified um, kind of the top vegetables and fruits that had at least 10% or more of 17 different nutrients. So I say this is like the multivitamin box, right? Watercress is number one on that list. So we always have watercress in there. Um, but it's all of those type of watercress is number one. Yeah, watercress is number one. I would not have guessed that. So watercress has seventeen different types of nutrients. Mm -hmm. At least ten percent of. At least ten percent. Sorry, at least ten percent. What I'm curious, what else is on that list? I wouldn't have guessed watercress. Yeah, yeah. 
I can pull it up here and I can give you the rundown. Chinese cabbage is number two. Charred beet greens, like I talked about, really dense as far as minerals too. Spinach, chicory, leaf lettuce, parsley, romaine, which is shockingly high um, because I generally don't think of romaine as overly high. Collard greens, turnip greens, mustard greens, endive, chives, kale, dandelion greens, um, arugula, broccoli, but they have it all listed out. Um, interestingly, I think a lot of people are surprised to know blueberries didn't make the list and so much emphasis on blueberries, but this list doesn't consider phytonutrients. So it's only looking at basically vitamins, minerals, um, I believe fiber as well. And so blueberries did not. Did any fruit make the list? Strawberries made the list. Um, tomatoes, if you count them as a fruit. Uh, oranges, lime, grapefruit, they're towards the bottom of the list. So they're like on a weighted score of like 10 to 12, 17 is strawberry, strawberries. So watercress is a hundred. Wow. What's the, what's number two? What's the distance? The second one is Chinese cabbage. That's, what, what's that number? 1.99. <laughs> Fascinating. I never would have guessed those two. Yeah, so um, we have that, and then we just have our high nitrate greens box. So this is for people who are interested in cardiovascular health or athletic performance who are looking to just increase their nitric oxide levels naturally. Um, really just focus on high nitrate greens, and we grow in a way that we optimize nitric content in our greens. So cool, so cool. Well, in so many ways, I think what you guys are doing uh, is a model for the future. And I'm curious, like, what are you seeing a lot of right now with your clients, people you're working with? Yeah. So, you know, people I work with privately, I see a lot of like hormone, blood sugar, mindful eating. That's kind of my special area. As far as here, it really depends. I've worked with a lot of people or talked with a lot of people who um, have cancer or other chronic conditions where they're really just looking for like, how do I support myself through this? Um, so we do have like a build your own box function that I just, um, launched where people can go in and it's set by category like cancer um, cardiovascular disease um, ms you know and you can go in and see what vegetables have some evidence to support their use um, but you know it really it really depends we hear from so many different people who are looking to really support their journey um, but yeah i would say cancer is a really big one right now and what advice do you have for someone who's, you know, struggling? Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's blood sugar, whatever it might be, but but struggling on their wellness journey. Yeah. So, you know, I say to first just take a breath. I think the biggest thing to underscore is that it is a journey. A lot of times we're looking for that one magic thing that's, you know, lurking around the corner that we just haven't found yet. And sometimes we put so much thought and emphasis into you know, something out there instead of what, what can we do? What do we have control over? What are some of the basics that we can get back to? Um, so part of it is relaxing, getting out of that sympathetic state um, and really just getting back to like nourishment, um, focusing again on the things you can control. And so, you know, zooming out, you know, we spend time talking about regenerative ag and sourcing and you know, we tend to think about sourcing, about sustainability when it comes to food. Now we're starting to think about it in clean beauty, in clothing, with cotton. Um, 
how do you think about sourcing in general across everything? What's important to you? What, what do you recommend when we're out there shopping so we can avoid going down that rabbit hole we just discussed? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think when possible, labels are less important to me than actual practices. So labels can be really expensive for farmers to obtain, um, like organic and things like that. And the the definitions and the criteria to be, for example, certified organic change over time. Um, and so I think it's really important to not get too hung up on searching for a label, but to instead understand the farming practices um, where your food is coming from, how it's raised, how it's grown. Um, and then also just to be thinking of how do you support those small businesses or those people who are growing in a way that really aligns with your values um, and that maybe there's some some value there that is worth paying for. I like to say, I think it's really worth thinking of like the quality over quantity. We're so used to wanting like the best deal and the biggest volume, but there's a lot to be said for that quality. I, I went to Starbucks recently and you know, you pay $6 for a drink, but then if my carrots cost $6, you're like, what, why are my carrots so expensive? Right. And so I think it's just changing our perception of what is valuable and how do we, how do we put that value on people understanding we're supporting family farms, we're supporting agriculture, which not only affects the health of people today, but of future generations as well as the planet. You know, I love that you mentioned equality because I've applied that with everything in terms of, you know, the food we buy, we focus on quality and not quantity. I think, you know, you think about waste is a huge problem with regards to climate change, whether it's food products clothing so like we try to focus on quality and not quantity and not waste food try to do it with products we buy for clothing i'd rather buy one great cotton t-shirt that's going to last me forever that i love versus lots of t-shirts that aren't you know don't have that quality and so you know i think with regards to making a difference in climate change i do think it's almost simpler and that just like buy less stuff, but buy stuff you really love. And that is made with great quality, whether that's food or a product or what have you, to just kind of simplify it a bit. Exactly. And that's, I love just the simplicity of getting back to like, what tastes really good. I think a lot of people don't eat vegetables because they have been scarred from childhood, right? Like the overcooked Brussels sprouts that are soggy and gross or tasteless carrots from the grocery store. Like, how do you find those vegetables that actually taste good? And you have those memories. Like my grandparents um, had like an orchard when I was a kid. And I remember eating like warm tomatoes or plums right from the tree. And, you know, those tastes stick with me. And so how do you get back to that and back to like really coming at eating with all of your senses and really loving the food that you're taking in? Yeah, you, know, you mentioned those overcooked Brussels sprouts. I, I, I know the answer to this, but I'll just ask anyway. You know, I love charred, extra crispy Brussels sprouts. But my guess is when you kind of overcook and char it, probably taking a lot of the good stuff out. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. 
Is it better than not eating Brussels sprouts at all? I would say yes. I mean, I would say if that's the way you'll eat them, go for it. But, you know, maybe a little less charred. <laughs> I, I like them when they're sliced so thin and charred versus like cooking them whole and they're a little bit, I'm just like, oh, those like yes. yeah. charred Brussels sprouts with like some great vinegar. Or, uh, there's a restaurant here in Miami called Uchi. It's like whatever, it's a sushi restaurant we don't eat a ton of sushi but we do we go there and they have the charred brussels sprouts and they're just so good brussels sprouts have come so far that's i think when you go out now i see brussels sprouts on so many menus and they're just delicious so yeah and so in closing you know is there is there one thing no matter where someone is in their journey that we should incorporate into our routine when it comes to vegetables you know for me one of the takeaways like watercress like who knew sweet potatoes carrots sweet potatoes carrots do not do not peel do not peel like in terms of vegetables like what's something that we should all know that we're you know probably not doing yeah so there's so many things i can say here but i think my one thing is get in as much color as you can color is phytonutrients and color is that sensory experience so you know experiment have fun make your dishes beautiful it doesn't have to be complicated like you said about meal prepping i mean have some vegetables cut up maybe one vegetable from each color and just throw them in throughout the week um but having color in your meals can make all of the difference what's your most underrated vegetable oh my gosh let me think for a second right now it depends on the season honestly that you ask me <laughs> but right now i would say cauliflower even though cauliflower had its little like day in the limelight for all the low carb uh things you know uses but we have cauliflower in the fields that is crazy. We have like coral flower, which is a really unique type of cauliflower that almost has like the craziest sweetness. You can even eat the leaves of it, like the leaves of the plant, the outer leaves. Um, also, it comes in so many different colors. I was doing a demo at our farm market this weekend and it was like kids back to school lunches. And I had this purple cauliflower that was like, bright purple and you wouldn't believe how many different kids were trying cauliflower and liking it and it was i think it was just because it was purple but it was really fun to see but i think there's so many different uses even putting cauliflower into smoothies which sounds kind of gross um you know the the ability of the brassica vegetables to detoxify um like metabolically especially with hormone metabolism i think um they pack so much of a punch um from so many different angles so yeah cauliflower <laughs> amy thank you so much yeah thank you so much for having me this has been fun